Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 25 this evening. Um, We're coming to the climax of the gospel of Mark, uh, the purpose of Jesus really coming to earth, uh, his death and his resurrection. Mark has been moving rapidly, creating a collage, if you will, of the life of Jesus, using the word immediately to go from one scene to the next until now. Uh, Mark begins to slow down when Jesus gets to Jerusalem as he begins his journey towards the cross as we approach the final section of Mark's gospel. Uh, Last week, Ryan um, helped us see at the end of his text that Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest friends, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. And verse 11 closes with, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And that really brings us to our text this evening. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn to Mark 14, verse 12 to 25. Hear the word of our Lord. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Uh, We ask that you would show us yourself this evening, that you would help us to um, trust you, that you would help us to uh, look inwardly to see where we need to turn away from the things that are keeping us from you to turn towards you and help us to feast on you this evening. Uh, We ask that you would be at work that you would help us to know your love and your faithfulness to us, that as we come to your table, we would feast upon you, the one who brings life, the one who fills us, and the one who forgives us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, before I go on a a trip or I'm going to be out of town for several days, um, we usually try to make that last night before I leave a a pretty fun night with our family. I'm sure you do the same thing. Um, You know, I make sure that I don't have anywhere else to be so that I can be with Megan and the kids. Uh, We usually make a special meal together or we go out for dinner and then, you know, we'll watch a movie or snuggle on the couch, uh, play a game. Our goal is really just to be together. Uh, to have fun together, to soak up these last moments before I head out of town. 
We do all that uh, because I want my wife, I want my kids to know that they're valuable and they're important to me. I want to communicate my love to them and their significance to me. I want them to remember that as I leave them, that they're the most important, special, and valuable people to me. That even though I'm going to be away from them for just a little while, I'm coming back and they're mine and I am theirs. Now, it's just a small small broken picture of what Jesus is doing here with his 12 disciples in this passage. Jesus isn't going on a trip, though. Um, He's not going to be back in a couple days after going out of town. He's headed to the cross. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He's going to be killed unjustly. He's going to be mocked, spit on, and flogged and killed just as he predicted. He's going to go where none of us could go. He's going to do what none of us could achieve on our own. He's going to die on a cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins so that we could be brought in, so that we could be brought into a right relationship with God, so that our sins could be covered and we could be saved and welcomed into the family of God forever. But here we are on the night before Jesus is executed, and he wants to have this last meal with his friends. Jesus knows his time is drawing to an end, and he has to have this last supper with his friends, celebrating the Passover with them, um, serving them, loving them, equipping them, challenging them, reshaping them. So this evening, uh, our text, as we read through it, it's broken up into three little vignettes. Um, The first one, we see two disciples who are following Jesus' odd instructions uh, to prepare the Passover meal. And then we see Jesus tell them with this bomb dropped in the middle of dinner that one of them is going to betray him. And then we see Jesus and his friends celebrate the Passover together. But Jesus changes everything with this meal um, because he is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of God's people being freed from slavery in Egypt. Those little lambs that they sacrificed for all these years um, that saved people and protected God's people in Egypt um, when the 10th plague came, they were all pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist tells us this when he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus is our true Passover lamb. And Hebrews 10 tells us, but when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. His one sacrifice is what all the little sacrifices were leading up to. They were pointing toward his. His sacrifice of himself uh, was sufficient to make all those who turn to him in faith and repentance, all those that feast upon him by faith, holy. It is enough. It really is sufficient. It really is finished. The debt has been paid, and that's why Jesus sits down, Hebrews tells us. His work is over. He's done what he came to do to set the world to rights and to make a people for himself. And so this evening, we're just going to look at three invitations that Jesus makes to his disciples and by extension to us. First, we're going to look first at the invitation to trust Jesus in the midst of uncertainty. And then second, we're going to look at the invitation to introspection and to repentance. And third, we're going to look at the invitation to feast upon him. So first, let's look at the invitation to trust Jesus in the midst of uncertainty. In verse 12 to 16, uh, we see Jesus send two of his disciples out to prepare the Passover meal for him. 
Jesus doesn't say in front of everyone, you know, go to Simon's house on Shibboleth Street. Um, that's where we're going to eat. You know, why doesn't he just tell them where they're going? Well, remember we just read, or I told you about before we read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14. Judas has gone to the chief priest to betray Jesus. And verse 11 ends, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What we see in this small passage is that Jesus is actually in complete control of everything that's going on around him. It looks like from an outside perspective, you know, that Jesus is, is actually losing his control. Um, after all, he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be killed. But D Jesus demonstrates continually and explicitly in this passage that he's in control of everything that's happening. Um, and his sovereign grasp on what's about to happen to him is not slipping at all. Jesus knew that if he told everyone, let's go to Simon's house um, for the Passover tonight, that Judas would have an opportunity to hand him over that evening. But this night, this night before he goes to the cross, is too important to Jesus. Being with his friends is too important to him. He has to spend this last night with them. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows they're going to fail him. He knows they're going to abandon him. He knows that, um, that they're going to cower in fear. And he wants to spend one more night with his friends, encouraging them, serving them. John tells us that he washes their feet. He wants to equip them and feast with them. He wants them to know that he is committed to them, that he's with them no matter what happens in the next coming days. So Jesus keeps these two disciples uh, in the dark, and they're invited to trust him. They're invited to walk by faith even in the midst of their uncertainty. He tells them, go to Jerusalem. Um, this is where Moses commanded God's people to eat the Passover meal. And he says, find a man carrying a jar of water. Now this is significant because men in, that, in those days didn't carry water around. So this man would have stuck out uh, so that he would have been easy to spot. And so when they find him, they're supposed to follow him. They're not supposed to talk to him. They're supposed to follow him home. And then they're supposed to ask the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where's my guest room uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. And then verse 16 tells us that they found things just as Jesus had told them. So we see here, again, Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens, and he refuses to let this night be interrupted. But you can imagine, if you're like me, um, the disciples uh, being frustrated here. You know, we aren't told that they're frustrated, but we can really picture it. You know, they might be thinking, Jesus, why don't you just tell us where we're going? Um, tell us what's happening next. You know, I'm happy to follow you. I'm happy to obey you. But I'd really like to know what's going on here. But... Jesus doesn't feel the need to explain it to them. And if you and I are honest, I think, um, we often feel the same way. Jesus, I'm happy to follow you. I'm happy to obey you, maybe. But I'd really like to understand what's happening here. I'd really like to know what's coming next. Can you just tell me what's going on? Because then I'll be able to follow you better. You know, we get this with our kids, right? Um, we have a water slide that we bought during quarantine last year so uh, the kids could play outside and, and have some fun. And after they're done playing in the water, we say to them, okay, can you please go hang up your clothes? Um, we want them to obey and to trust us. We don't feel the need to explain to them all the reasons why we want them to obey. We don't feel the need to explain to them, okay, please don't put your clothes 
your wet clothes in the drawer with all of your clean clothes and close them and leave them for four or five, seven days. And then we find them uh, and they've gotten really gross and moldy and nasty and all of your clean clothes are dirty now. Um, and now we have to do another load of laundry. Please just hang up your clothes. Um, that may or may not have happened this week. Um, you know, it's a silly thing, but it happens all the time with our children. We want them to trust us, to listen to us, without having to explain every reason and potential disaster that may come if they don't trust us and obey us. But if we're honest, it's the same, we're the same way with Jesus. Life gets hard. Life gets painful or confusing. And we assume that things are out of control. So, you know, where this evening do you feel like life is out of control for you? And then we might be tempted to say, you know, listen, God, I don't understand. Can't we just do this my way? Uh, can't you just tell me what's next? Can't you just spell it out for me, Jesus? When this begins to happen, we might struggle to trust that Jesus is good, that we might struggle to trust that he really does love us. We might really trust or struggle to trust that he's in control. And so when we struggle to trust that he's in control, we're tempted to turn our own way and feel like we have to fend for ourselves. You know, things aren't going the way that we think they should go. Life isn't turning out how we had hoped. Our kids are struggling. We're not getting the recognition at home or at work that we think we deserve. A bad diagnosis comes from the doctor. A relationship sours and causes pain and difficulty. We're, we're discouraged and frustrated and hurting. And then anxiety sets in and we begin to question God which is okay, by the way, he can handle it. Um, but we can begin to think, you know, again, God, if you just told me what was next, then I can follow you better now if I knew what was coming. But that's not the way Jesus works in this passage. That's not the way he works throughout scripture. When things feel out of control, the problem for us begins when we begin to believe lies about who God is and we think we can do better than him. We can think, you know, God isn't good. He doesn't love me. He must be punishing me. I must have done something wrong, and now I'm outside of his will for me. He doesn't care about me or my family. Why is he letting this happen? But it's here that we need to be reminded of who God is, of how God defines himself. In Exodus 34, chapter 6, this is the way our God defines himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who our God is. Anything that leads us to believe that he isn't good, that he isn't in control, that he doesn't love us is a lie. And we need to be driven back to the scriptures to trust him that he really is good, that he really is compassionate and gracious, that he really does abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's created this entire world and he has not abandoned us. He hasn't given up on us. Paul tells us that God will complete the good work that he began in you. We know that God loves us because Jesus goes to the cross and he experiences suffering and separation from God on that cross so that we could be his, so that we could be brought near and never know God having to turn his face away from us. We need to remember Romans 8.1, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the God of the Bible. If he withdrew his hand, even for just a second, the whole world would fall apart. 
He is in control. Job 34, 14 says, If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. And after Job experiences great suffering and he questions God, God responds to him, Were you there when I created the world? He essentially says, it's not your job to understand everything, Job. Even if I told you, you wouldn't be able to handle it. It's your job to follow and to trust me. Not to do it blindly, not to do it just because I say so, even though that's enough. I want you to follow me because I am who I am. I'm faithful. I love you. I made you. I'm good. You're mine. God made the world and everything in it, and he loves us so much that he sent his son so that we could be brought in. And he promises that Jesus will return one day to set everything right. Nothing happens in our lives, in this world, that God doesn't cause or allow. And even when life seems out of control and we're experiencing pain and confusion, we need to remember that our God is still in control. He hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel and he promises that he will return one day to, to right every wrong, to get rid of all of our pain and suffering. A time is coming when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. And we can trust that just as Jesus is in control in Mark chapter 14 of this story, he's in control of our stories as well. He has not forgotten us. In the midst of the uncertainties that we find ourselves in, we can trust that Jesus is in complete control and he will not let us go. And if we're his, nothing, Paul says in Romans, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is inviting his disciples. He's inviting us to walk by faith in the midst of our uncertainties because he is in control and because he loves us. So first, we see our invitation to trust Jesus in the midst of uncertainty, and I promise the other points will be shorter. Um, but we also see in verses 17 to 21 uh, an, an invitation to repentance and an invitation to introspection. Verse 17 says, When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And then we find them in the middle of this Passover meal together. It's an intimate setting. They're lying down. They're reclining together at the table. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them during dinner. Verse 18 says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then in verse 20, he says it again. It's one of the 12, one who dips their bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him had, if he had not been born. Now, we know the end of the story. Uh, we've read in Mark chapter 3 when Judas is introduced to us as the one who would betray Jesus. We just read in Mark 14 verses 10 and 11 that Judas went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. But the disciples have no idea what's going on. You know, do you see how they respond in verse 19? They don't say, oh yeah, it's Judas. They're like, it's Judas. Uh, he's always been a little shifty. We know it's him. Um, verse 19 says, they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. What we see in Judas in this text in the book of Mark is that you can spend a lot of time with Jesus. You can follow him around. You can perform miracles in his name. You can hear all of his teaching. You can see all of his miracles. You can act like a follower of Jesus, and yet your heart can be far from him. 
Judas is meant to be a warning to us. We're not supposed to look at Judas and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I'm not like Judas. We're not supposed to look at Judas and all the other terrible people around us and go, well, at least I'm not like them. Jesus is inviting his disciples and us into introspection and repentance here. The disciples, they still might have too high of a view of themselves. They say, surely you don't mean me. You know, it, it, it couldn't be me, Jesus. I'm not that bad. But Jesus, after the supper, will predict that all of the disciples will fall away from him. And he'll, he'll predict Peter's dis- denial of him. Peter responds in verse 40, 31 of chapter 14, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They think it can't be me. It won't be me. It's not me. But the reality for them, for all of us, is that we all have the seeds of betrayal of Judas in our hearts. We're all like Judas in the sense that we all sin. We all ignore God. We all choose our own paths. And the reality for us is that every sin against Jesus is actually a betrayal. This is particularly upsetting to us because Judas isn't an outsider. He's part of the 12. He's part of Jesus' inner circle, his best friends, and he's sharing this intimate meal with Jesus, and he's followed him closely for three years. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you no longer relate to Jesus just as creator and king, but you are his brother, his friend, his sister, his spouse, his covenant partner. You know, if you break the speed limit, you're just violating uh, the rules of the government. But if if a close friend asks you to do something and you violate their wishes, it's not just a violation of your word. It's actually a personal act of betrayal. Those that, that haven't placed their hope in Jesus, they still sin against Jesus as their creator and their king. They owe him, scripture tells us, their allegiance and obedience to him because he made them. But as Christians... We're, we also sin against Jesus as our redeemer and as our brother. We're duly obligated to him. He's not, he has not only just made us and rules over us, but he sacrificed himself for us, and we know it, and we trust it, and we believe it, and we're actually a part of the family. So all of the sins of a follower of Jesus are also personal betrayals. So Jesus invites us to self-examine and to be introspective here. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, how do I make light of my sin? How do I betray Jesus and my failure to obey him? But that's where repentance comes in. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus. It's not turning towards something else. It's not turning towards trying harder or doing better. It's not turning to yourself and your your self-worth. It's turning to Jesus. And in Jesus saying these words, he's giving an opportunity to Judas at this intimate setting to be introspective and to repent. It's not too late for him to turn around and to stop this act of betrayal. But we know from the rest of the story that Judas doesn't take Jesus at his word here. He doesn't come to him for forgiveness. He does grieve his actions later, but they don't drive him back to Jesus like Peter will after his betrayal uh, when, Jesus, when Peter jumps into the water in John 21, when Jesus is on the beach cooking breakfast for them. So we need to see that, that like the disciples, we need to look at our own hearts here. You know, do I know a lot about Jesus 
Or do I actually know him? Do I have a relationship with him? Am I moving towards Jesus? Do I see my sin and I turn towards him for forgiveness? You know, does my sin drive me to grief, but drive me to repentance even more? And to remember the gospel reality that we just talked about from Romans 8, that there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It shouldn't drive us to despair when we turn in because we should see that God has been gracious to us and that he loves us. You know, do we, do we live out of the reality that we are God's dearly loved children, that we've been forgiven and we are seen as clothed in Jesus' righteousness? Do I trust that God's favor and delight in me is not based on me or any of my actions, what I've done, what I haven't done, but based solely on Jesus and his work for me? You know, do we trust that our sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more? Does it drive us to sing, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul? Do we see that we actually need a savior, that we don't do anything to earn or to merit his mercy and grace, but we receive his mercy and grace and love when we come to him owning our failures and our brokenness? You know, or do we think, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as those people. Um, I'm pretty good. Jesus friends, is not a therapist. He's not a life coach. He's not a maid. He's a sinner. He's a savior who dies for sinners. You know, do we see our sin and our need or do we explain it away? Do we make excuses for it? Do we blame those around us or do we see that we're helpless apart from his grace and mercy and we desperately need his sacrifice to cover us? So we've seen an invitation to trust Jesus in the midst of our uncertainties, and we've seen an invitation to, in, to introspection and to repentance. And so now let's look at our final invitation, to feast upon Jesus. Remember, the disciples, they've gathered together with Jesus to celebrate the Passover. This is the meal that God's people have been celebrating for 1,500 years at this point. It's the night before they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And they gather on this night with Jesus, the night before an even greater deliverance, uh, a greater exodus. The night before Jesus goes to the cross and will deliver his people from a greater slavery, a slavery from their sin. And the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt protected God's people and the blood of this true Passover lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world is poured out for many, for people who Jesus takes the judgment on himself so that we could be freed, so that we could be forgiven and welcomed in as God's family. You know, during the Passover, uh, God's people they would reenact and they would retell the story of God's deliverance. There'd be four cups of wine that they would drink. And these four cups would signify the four promises that God makes to his people in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. The first cup would be passed with the first promise of, I will bring you out from under the yoke of slavery. And then they would eat. And then a child would ask, why do we eat this food and celebrate this night? And they would remember and reenact the story of God's deliverance. And then the second cup would come and it would be passed with the promise, I will free you as slaves. And then the host of the meal would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungry come and eat. And he would give thanks for the unleavened bread and he would break it and he would pass it and they would eat it in silence. Now, we don't know for certain, but it's likely that this is where Mark picks up in the, in the meal um, in verse 22. Remember, this meal's been happening in this way for 1,500 years at this point. 
And then in verse 22, Jesus breaks the silence. He says this. He says the unthinkable. He, he gives thanks for the bread. He breaks it. He gives it to his disciples. And he says, take it. This is my body. 1,500 years of tradition and the sacrifices of lambs to remember God's deliverance and rescuing his people through the blood that's poured out over their, the, the posts. Um, it reaches its culmination, its fulfillment in this moment right here. Jesus says, take it. This is my body. I mean, talk about jarring. You can imagine the disciples are just totally confused. They're having their worlds rocked completely. But Jesus is saying in this moment, the original Passover, the Exodus as a whole, it's all about me. He's saying this bread is my body. It's not my actual flesh. It's this bread represents my whole person, my whole physical being. Jesus is revealing to them. He's revealing to us that his death will be a gift of himself to them and to us and asking them to take it. He's saying, take this, eat this. He's inviting them to receive this gift of himself into the depths of their whole being. And then he takes what would have been the third cup, the promise that God will redeem his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he says this, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is the same phrase used in Exodus 24 when God establishes his covenant with his people at Sinai after the events of the Exodus. But Jesus here is recalling Jeremiah 31 and the promise that his blood is the blood of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies about. His sacrifice is the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices because it really will cover. It really is sufficient to pay for all of his people's sin. In this life-altering claim by Jesus in this moment, he's saying, as Tim Keller says, my death is the central and climactic event toward which the whole story of the people of God and the history of salvation has been moving. Every other deliverance by every other leader, every other sacrifice, every other prophet, priest, king, and hero have all been pointing to this night. This is the climax of history. I'm about to deal with evil and sin and death once and for all. Jesus is saying, this is all about me. You don't receive the benefits of me and the relationship with me by just looking at it. Take it. It's not a meal that's prepared on a cooking show where you just watch it and you salivate over it and you don't actually get to taste it. Jesus says, take it. Feed on me by faith digest me. Let me fill you. Let me nourish you. Nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will give you life. I will be with you. I promise and pledge myself to you through this. Feed upon me. Let me be the source of your growth in me. Let me be the source of you producing the fruit of the Spirit. Let me be the source of your humility and joy and life and love and forgiveness and strength and wisdom for your daily life. And taking this meal by faith you're sharing in a new relationship with God that cannot be broken. To share a meal with someone in Jesus' day, it meant that you were in relationship with them. Jesus is saying here in this meal that we have to have a relationship with him, that we have to place all our faith in him if the benefits of his sacrificial and substitutionary death are to be applied to us. We can't enjoy the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice without being in relationship with him. He calls us to feast. And then Jesus skips the fourth cup, 
the promise that God would bring his people to the promised land that he swore he would bring them home to. He says in verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying this fourth cup still remains, and I'm going to wait until every one of my people are gathered around me at the wedding feast of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19, when every one of them, when the last person shows up, that's when I'll drink. That's when I'll partake of this cup of fulfillment and consummation. Jesus gathers broken betrayers around his table and he graciously offers himself to them. He graciously offers himself to us. And it's just a foretaste. It's like when you're grilling and your children come up and they say, what are you making? And you say, here, if you hang on a second, I'll give you a taste. And you cut off a piece of that steak and you blow on it because it's too hot. And you let them taste it and it melts in their mouth. And what do they say? They're like, oh, thanks, I'm good. I'll go keep playing. No, they say, oh, I can't wait for supper. That's exactly what Jesus is doing at this table, at the table that we're going to celebrate tonight. It's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what is going to happen when we gather around Jesus together, when he returns and we will feast and he will drink that cup and we will celebrate him together forever. We come and we taste and we take in Jesus' grace and his mercy and his love and forgiveness and we look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We look forward to when he will return, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where he will be so close to us at that table that he will wipe our tears away from our eyes. That's what we're looking forward to when we come to the table tonight. So tonight, think about this. What am I feasting on? What am I feasting on for life? Or am I snacking on sin? Am I snacking on things that ultimately are going to lead to my death and to walking away from Jesus? Am I feasting on things that are created to be used? Or am I feasting on the one that can alone bring life from death? Am I feasting on the one who brings me to life eternal with him? Am I feasting on the one that promises to never fail me, to never leave me, to never forsake me, to always fill me, to always satisfy me, and to always forgive me? Jesus invites us all tonight to feast upon him, to take the bread, to take the cup, to remember his love and his grace for you, and to celebrate him as we enter into relationship with him and to allow him to nourish and sustain and fill us all. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you come to us and that you invite us to trust you. You invite us to look into our hearts and lives to see where we need you. But you invite us to feast. You invite broken people who betray you day in and day out to feast upon you. And when we're yours, you promise that you will not drive us away. You will not leave us. You have bound yourself to us. You knew what you were getting into when you made this world, when you sent Jesus. And we thank you that you are faithful to us even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Help us to feast upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.